Today, we tell a story from history. We begin the journey in a high school history class. We mention what is arguably one of the most important dates when studying Judeo-Christian history, and then we travel back four decades earlier than that date for the birth of the hero of our story. And then we learn to ask the question, exactly how much of a hero was this guy? All on the way to answering the question, who is this guy? Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. I have a confession to make. Up until my senior year in high school, I hated history. It seemed to me to be a lot of memorizing dates, and that was kind of all it was. When I got to my senior year in high school, I suddenly encountered a new kind of history class, one that focused on the stories of history. And there's a shout out to Dr. Presley, who was an amazing teacher and really opened up history for me. We certainly talked about dates, but the emphasis was on the stories and even the personalities of history and how those personalities shaped the stories and therefore history. This podcast is going to be all about history and the interesting story of one particular guy. We'll talk dates, but all you really need to know is one date, one year, and everything else is important only because it happened before or after that year. So let's get the date out of the way. If there's a single date in history that you should remember when studying the New Testament or modern Judaism, it is the year 70 CE. And that's roughly 35, 40 years after the death of Jesus. It's impossible to overstate the importance of this date and what a momentous shift it created in the world of Judaism and Christianity. Interestingly, what we know of this date and the cataclysmic events associated with it, well, all of that comes from one particular person. And amongst scholars, he's a household name, and yet is not talked about very much at all outside of academic settings. So I'm going to tell you his story. He is, in all likelihood, one of the most important people you may have never heard of. In the year 66, there were some new taxes imposed by Rome on the Jews, and there were always new taxes, and Rome was always trying to figure out more ways to squeeze money from the people it had conquered. This particular time, when these new taxes were imposed, it resulted in protests, riots, and even attacks upon Roman citizens. And in retaliation, the local Roman governor raided the holiest site in all of Judaism, the temple in Jerusalem. And that was really the straw that broke the camel's back. Then, in order to add insult to injury, the next day the governor went through the city and arrested a number of prominent Jewish figures. The arrest of these important leaders further fueled the fire and the rebellion that was growing. What was surprising was the level of success that the Jewish forces had initially against the Roman troops that were stationed there. Because if you think about it, the Jewish forces had no military training, but somehow were able to surprise, overwhelm, and defeat larger, better trained, and better equipped Roman forces. Now, not to ruin the story for you, but unfortunately, the ragtag Jewish forces, although initially successful, well, they were up against a military opponent 
with almost unlimited forces and resources, and an opponent who was willing to commit all the resources necessary in order to win. Even the smallish skirmish lost by the Romans could turn into the impetus to convince other conquered territories to rise up. Every rebellion and every bit of resistance had to be ruthlessly crushed, and they were highly efficient at doing exactly that. Now, let's backtrack a bit. Probably just a couple of years after the crucifixion of Jesus, a baby was born. The two events aren't related. I'm just helping you notice when it happened in history. A baby was born into an upper-crust priestly family in Jerusalem. Remember, to be a priest in Jerusalem at the time meant not that there were, like we think of, churches out and around and the priests went to various churches. All the priests in Jerusalem served exclusively at the temple. And you only held that position of a priest at the temple by birth heritage. Priestly families of Jerusalem were upper class, and because it was inherited, I guess it could be compared to nobility of kind of other countries that we think of today. Except, except the Jews were a lot more particular about how far back and how pure that heritage had to be in order to be a priest. In essence, you had to be a descendant of Aaron on both sides of your parents. This baby was named Joseph ben Matthias. What we know of this man comes from his own writings and by his own not-so-humble admission, he was a precocious child. According to him, he was, at the age of 14, consulted by the high priest on matters of Jewish law. This is the equivalent to someone claiming that at the let's say, the age of 14, the chief justice of the Supreme Court in the United States consulted them on matters of law. It's not to say that Joseph didn't have a discussion with a high priest, but I think, and I think historians would agree on this, there's zero chance that the high priest needed to consult a 14-year-old. But this is our first real story about this young man at this point, and it already gives us great insight into his nature. He was, without a doubt, exceedingly bright, and, it would be fair to say, thought probably more of himself than was probably due. Though he was born Joseph, he would later change his name to Josephus, and rather than waiting until the middle of the story and confusing you by suddenly changing his name, I'm just going to call him Josephus from this point on. So in the year 64, so two years before the rebellion, broke out, he was sent to Rome to see if he could secure the release of several priests who were being held prisoner there. I don't really know what reason they were being held. He made several friends in high places during his trip to Rome, and he really became enamored with Roman culture and all things Roman. He also witnessed during that time and came to admire the impressive military might of the Roman Empire. He returned to Jerusalem just before the riots and rebellion broke out in 66. That year, after the rebellion and riots, when it looked like they were going to be going up against Roman forces who would be brought in to reinforce the forces that were failing against the Jewish uprising, that year he was appointed head of Jewish forces in Galilee, and according to his writing, he was in favor of compromise with the Romans. He'd seen their military might, and he was, if anything, a pragmatist and a survivor, as you will soon see. 
Now, it was an honor to be placed in charge of the Jewish forces in all of Galilee, but, and this is a big but, Galilee's the, in the northern region of Israel, and therefore the area, well, the area which the Roman forces are going to attack first when they come. The cities he commanded were certain to experience the first onslaught of the coming Roman legions. He has not much positive to say about the decision-making process of Jewish leadership at that time and complained that he was undermined at every turn in his efforts to reach out to the Romans and seek some sort of resolution. He did not believe that they had any chance whatsoever against the Roman forces, and he was, therefore, against trying to go up against them. But even though he thought it was a hopeless cause, he undertook the process of fortifying the towns with which he was charged. He and his troops defended the cities the best they could, but they were quickly overrun by the overwhelming superiority of the Roman army. His greatest success was to hold a fortress against the Romans for 47 days, but eventually even that fell, and he fled with 40 soldiers to a cave where they were able to hold their position against the Roman army that was standing outside. Of course, holding your position in a cave is of dubious value. You're not giving up ground. You're not losing people in battle. But the forces and ground you currently have are of very little use to you. And of course, supplies will eventually run out. The only version we have as to what happened in that cave is, well, that's right, his. And according to his account of that time, he wanted to surrender to the Romans, which is probably true. But there was a decision made by the rest of the men in the cave that it was better to die then and there than to allow themselves to be taken. Josephus tells us that he reminded them at that moment of the sinfulness of suicide, that they couldn't just kill themselves. So they had to agree to some sort of system where they killed each other. They would draw lots and one by one kill each other. And according to Josephus, he rigged the system so that he would be amongst the last two left alive. When it was just the two of them, then he convinced the other one to surrender with him to the Romans outside. The two prisoners were placed in chains and presented to Vespasian. Vespasian was the general in charge of all the Roman troops in this war. Josephus immediately claimed to have had a prophetic vision. Now, no one knows whether or not this was truly a prophetic vision or just an opportunistic moment for him in the face of Vespasian. But he told him that he had foreseen Vespasian becoming emperor. And it wasn't long after that that Emperor Nero died. And at the time of his death, it began to look like Josephus would turn out to be correct. Towards the end of the year 69, the troops named Vespasian emperor, and the new emperor granted Josephus his freedom because of this prophecy that he had offered. As I understand it, he offered to be the chronicler of history for Vespasian and his battles in this area. And this turn of events is why he's become so important to historians. With Vespasian, now the emperor of Rome, his son Titus, who would also later go on to become emperor, took over as general of the troops going up against the Jewish insurrection. According to his story, he accompanied Titus and wrote the history of his battles there. 
Ultimately, he was witness to the Roman forces laying siege to the city of Jerusalem. Now, we're not actually sure whether Josephus was really there with the troops or if he collected stories later for this history. But whichever is the case, he's really the only history we have of the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Once again, in this battle as well, there were a couple of surprising victories against the Romans. The Romans had moved their enormous siege engines into place outside the walls of Jerusalem. The Jews tunneled under them and set fire in the tunnels, causing the tunnels to collapse and the siege engines to be toppled and destroyed. It was pretty cool and exciting, but not definitive enough to turn the course of this battle. Unfortunately, the victories were short-lived and there was disagreement within Jerusalem as to the best course of action. Ultimately, some misguided thinking caused a group of them to set fire to their own food reserves in hopes of forcing God to come to their rescue. The Romans, again, had people, resources, and time on their side, and the Jews had none of those. Evidently, the Romans built a mound outside the wall of Jerusalem, and any people caught trying to escape were crucified on the mound and allowed to die a horrible, slow, painful death while those inside could only watch. Meanwhile, those inside did not fare much better. There was starvation and death. There was no unified leadership. Instead, there were multiple quarreling factions who argued with each other and therefore undermined any effort in the war. It was horrible. According to the information we have, there were those who even resorted to cannibalism. One story tells of a woman who killed, roasted, and consumed her own son in response to the hunger that they were experiencing. Eventually, in August of 70, the Romans breached the wall of the cities, took the city, and they burned and toppled the temple. Now, when Jesus was on his way to be crucified, this is much earlier, when Jesus was on his way to be crucified, we're told that some of the women of Jerusalem are crying for him as he's carrying his cross towards Golgotha. And his response to them, this is from the Gospel of Luke, his response to them is, but Jesus turned to them and said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, for the days are surely coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and the hills cover us. This interchange is understood by Christians to be referring to the siege of Jerusalem. And here's the interesting reality. The story we have about a mother eating her own child, that comes from, guess who? Yep, you guessed it, Josephus. Matter of fact, we have precious little, if any, information outside of the writings of Josephus. And we know a couple of things. We know and can prove that there are places in his writings that are not accurate and are obviously embellished. We know that he was a Jew who had defected, changed his name to be more Roman, Titus Flavius Josephus, Flavius in honor of Vespasian's family name, Titus in honor of Vespasian's son. It's not that there are historians who argue for the reliability of Josephus' writing and others who argue against it. Everyone acknowledges that his history is at best a mixed bag. But for much of this location and this time period, he's all we've got. And this is particularly true for this most important time of 70 AD. 
Josephus is universally studied and referred to by Jewish, Christian, and secular scholars. Not because he's an impeccable source, but because he's admittedly all we have in this time period. All right, that's all about Josephus for today. Now, it seems like I'm leaving you hanging a bit. Bear with me. Be sure to tune in next week, because next week I'm going to do two things. One is I'm going to take this year, 70 AD, which I told you is so vitally important to Christianity and Judaism, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time telling you why it's so important. And then I'm going to tell you about a council, a Jewish council, that probably never happened, but is really important for us to talk about anyway. I hope you'll be sure to tune in next week and listen. That's all for today. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you get notified of future episodes. You can also find me on Facebook and YouTube. Just search for SkyPilot FaithQuest. And if you'd like to get in touch with me by email, my email address is dan at skypilot.zone. On your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. Thanks for listening to SkyPilot FaithQuest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions.